Good morning once again. I want to invite you to open God's Word with me to the Gospel of Luke. It's been about a four-week break since we've been there, and so I want to kind of pick up where we left off. And we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 32 this morning of Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. And just to kind of help jog our memory a little bit about where we left off at, we, we left off with Jesus healing a demon-possessed man who was mute. And the crowds were they're kind of amazed at this event that was going on. Uh, but there came to surface in this group a couple different uh, people. And the first that we saw was the, the antagonist, those who accused Jesus of casting out the demon by the power of Beelzebul, or literally the dung god. They, they falsely accused him of using the power of Satan to expel a demon and allow this man to speak again. And so Jesus literally just, he destroys their false conclusions and their false assumptions about where his power came from. He shows them it's really illogical and it's irrational for them to conclude that basically that he threw out Satan out of a man by the power of Satan. It just didn't make any sense why they would conclude that. And then we saw another group that came about, and those were the skeptics back in verse 16. And those were the ones that were testing him to see if he could produce another sign. But they really weren't interested in knowing the truth. They weren't necessarily uh, attributing the miracle to Satan that he just did, but they really weren't uh, saying that they're going to rule that out either. And so they kind of attempted to position themselves on sort of an intellectual or an empirical high road, if you will. But in the end, they really just end up being against Jesus Christ along with the antagonists. But then we had this woman in verse 27, who in spite of being a woman and speaking in mixed company, which was a no-no in that culture in that time, and in spite of being against the Jewish ruling leaders there about what they concluded about Jesus, she breaks forth from the crowd and she speaks up and she said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But then Jesus replied, and this wasn't necessarily a rebuke on her, but he replies in verse 28 where he says, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, Mary was a blessed woman, but there will be others who will receive a greater blessing. We said this wasn't a, a reprove of her statement, but rather it was an improve of her statement. And so basically what Jesus was saying to her and to them around him was that obedience to him, as informed by the word of God, is not an optional activity. Your greatest joy... Your lasting satisfaction, your ever-increasing delight in your life will come about when you hear the Word of God and when you obey it. When you live your life, as they say in the Latin, quorum Deo, before the face of God, when you live your life in such a way, you walk in His ways and in His commandments, you're going to find incalculable, immeasurable, and true, lasting joy. joy. The truly happy, the truly blessed, will find their greatest satisfaction in no earthly thing. But they will most assuredly find it in the powerful, passionate, personal pursuit of Jesus Christ. Is sin plaguing you? Then you need to pursue Christ. 
Are you lacking joy in your life? Then you need to look at Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Do you find life to be discouraging sometimes? Then cast yourself on Jesus Christ and trust him and trust his word. And so as we get back to our text this week, Jesus is going to set his sights on those skeptics once again. Those who claim only to want to see a little bit more evidence as to whether they can trust him or not. So let's read our text together, starting in verse 29 of Luke chapter 11. If you're there and you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I want to invite you to do so. Luke chapter 11, in verse 29, God's holy word says this. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Father, help us to delight in your word. With reverential fear, hear it, and then go from here and obey it. God, instruct our hearts and our minds so that we may see you more glorious than when we walked in here today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you a very personal and a very poignant question, and that poignant word means pricking to the mind, okay? I want to ask you a very personal and a very poignant question, and it's a question that you and you alone can answer, and that question is this, to what would you say is your heart being held captive? Or to put it in another way, what would you say that your heart loves the most? What garners the attention of your heart's affections? Now, you might have immediately thought, you know, my spouse or maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend. You might have thought about your family, your kids. Maybe you thought about your business or your home or or something that you own. Or maybe you thought about something that you long for and that you can't or you really shouldn't have. To what is your heart being held captive? I think that's kind of a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Because I think it can be difficult to answer because the moment that we really start to dwell on that, the moment that we start to contemplate that question is the moment that we all probably start to realize that our hearts aren't held captive to what it should be. Henry Skugel, a Scottish minister who at the age of 27, and by the way, he died at that age, he wrote a book to his friend, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. He wrote an entire book as an encouragement to his friend. He said this in 1677, he said, The worth and the excellency of a soul is measured by the object of, his love, of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. 
Now, we could probably all confess to some degree or another that the vanity of worldly pleasures, right? The vanity of worldly pursuits. And yet, if we are real honest with ourselves, these worldly pleasures and these worldly pursuits are what just seems to engross our hearts. The object of our love isn't what it should be. Because I think far too often, I think we seem to look at Jesus Christ and we get kind of a glimpse of him. And then we quickly turn away and we look to something else to satisfy us. We're like children who kind of watch a fireworks show, right? We see that first firework go up in the air and we say, ooh and ah. But just a moment later, we're looking at the popcorn stand and the guy selling those twirly glow-in-the-dark things, right? We don't wait for the grand finale, where we can see all of its beauty of that fireworks display, where we can see the infinite multitude of its colors and feel and sense and smell and witness all the best that that fireworks show has to offer. Our hearts are no less different when it comes to Jesus Christ. We don't remain captivated by grace. We are not continually blown away by his wisdom and power. We don't diligently seek him like we should. Our trust of the Lord seems to kind of ebb and flow, and our restless, idolatrous hearts, we're always looking for something else to satisfy us besides God. We have an all problem, A-W-E. And if we're going to put that, to the, that assertion to the test... I want you to think about every fleeting thought that you had this week. I want you to think about every choice that you made without considering the greater glory of God. I want you to think about the ingratitude that you demonstrated to God by not giving Him thanks. Think about every opportunity that you missed to share the gospel with someone and to talk to them about your Heavenly Father and His goodness to you. Think about the time that you doubted and casted doubt on God because you didn't go to Him in prayer when trouble came your way. Beloved of God, this should not be. This should not be true of us. We need to be so in awe of Jesus Christ that our love for Him, it pales in comparison to anything else. We ought to live, uh, be so in love with God that it takes all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. That is that our entirety of our being is to be so consumed with loving God and treasuring Him. We ought to be so utterly obsessed with living our lives in such a way that brings about the most glory to God. And so that at the end of our lives, we can look back and we say that the only thing that mattered is that I lived my life for the glory of God. So how do you fix that? How do you get your heading back on course? How do you regain your awe of Jesus Christ? We need to go on a diet. We need to go on a spiritual diet. First of all, we need to starve our hearts of those things which harm us, and that is namely sin. We need to lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us, as Hebrews 12.1 tells us. We need to stop letting sin reign in our mortal body and stop obeying its lust, as Romans 6.12 tells us. Romans 13.14 says, make no provision for the lust of the flesh or for the flesh in regards to its lust. And as aliens and strangers, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul, as 1 Peter 2.11 tells us. 
And we could go on and on about how the scripture calls us to flee from these things, run from these things, put off these things, mortify these things, take captive any thoughts that would cause you to be disobedient to Jesus Christ. But then we also need to feed our hearts. We need to feed our hearts those things that will cause us to flourish and draw us to him. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. We are to pray at all times in the Spirit, as Ephesians 6.18 tells us. We're called to not forsake the gathering of the brethren. And it's almost like a trinity of grace, if you will, that God has given us. The word, his prayer, praying to him, and fellowship with other believers. There's more than that, but those three are like the most basic and the most crucial We are called to not forsake gathering of the brethren. When we are to dwell on whatever is pure, noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, we are to dwell on these things, as Philippians 4 tells us. And we could go on and on and on about how the Scripture calls us to labor, to strive, to press on, to fight, to take pains in these things, and to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Is dieting hard? Of course it is. Will we sometimes suffer? Yes. Will we face defeats? Yes. Will we have disappointments? Yes. Will we have trials? Absolutely. But Jesus Christ will be enough. We can sit here and sing this song. Just give me Jesus, but do you mean it? Ladies and gentlemen, we are more than conquerors. He has freely given us all things and has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We have been given the Holy Spirit of promise. But you must desire to know him. You must study him. You must abide in him. You must seek after him. You must plunge yourself deep into the abiding word of God so that you may know the exact truth about whom we have much to do. Because the more that you know him, the more that you know the depth of your sin and that grace that overcomes it and abounds over top of it, the more you see the glory of Christ, the more you grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, you will exponentially increase your faith and your awe of Him. I can testify to that very fact, just being in Bible school and how much I've learned and how glorious He is to me now, how confident I am that Jesus Christ is my Savior. We need to fight for our faith, ladies and gentlemen. Fight! And yet, as we look at our text this morning, and we look at this crowd, and it's increasing, we're kind of like shocked by them, aren't we? We look at them, and and if you ever wanted to see shock and awe in Jesus, he provided it up to this point, didn't he? I mean, he just healed a man who was mute. He had cast demons into swine. He healed the woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years. He fed 5,000 people. And even he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. If any group of people should have their hearts in awe of Jesus Christ, it should have been them. But in verse 29, it says, As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it 
to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So first of all, he says to the ever-increasing crowds that this is a wicked generation. Matthew adds that they are idolatrous. But why is that? Why would he call them a wicked generation? Well, the reason's given to us in our text. Because they're seeking for a sign. Now you read that and you kind of think to yourself, you know, Jesus, that doesn't seem too unreasonable, does it? I mean, just another sign. That, that doesn't seem too far off base to just say, Jesus just performed some sort of miracle, right? And you say to yourself, wicked? Really? Just for wanting to see a sign? So what's the problem? What's the big deal about wanting to see a sign? The point is this. Jesus knew that whatever he did, whatever miracle he would perform, whatever wonder that would happen before their eyes, they're still not going to believe he's the Messiah. Even if he had taken and rearranged the stars in the sky and made it spell out, Behold, my beloved son, Jesus Christ, believe in him. They would say, that's pretty cool. Wow. That's kind of cool. Atheists do it all the time. They look at creation and they say, eh, that's pretty cool. But there's no God. That's the same people we have here. And Jesus illustrated this point. We're going to get to it in Luke 16 when he tells about the rich man and, and poor man named Lazarus and how Lazarus used to sit at that rich man's gate and how he longed to be fed by the crumbs from the rich man's table. And now both of these two men die. And the poor man is taken up into Abraham's bosom, which is a figurative way to say the poor man went to heaven. And then the rich man, he opens up his eyes after death, and he's in Hades, which is a figurative way to say he's in hell. And he looks, and he sees Abraham up in comfort in Abraham's bosom, and there's this great chasm fixed between them. And the rich man, he cries out in agony for a drink of water because of the flames. But because of this great chasm, no one can cross over from one side to the other. The judgment has been fixed, and it is irreversible. And so the rich man then, he thinks about his five brothers. And he says to Abraham, he says, send Lazarus so that he can go warn my brothers and and tell them about the place that I'm in and the state that I'm in so they don't have to suffer. And Abraham responds back and he says, you know what? They've already been told. You know, they should know. They have Moses and the prophets. They have basically the Old Testament. They have plenty of revelation to believe. And so the rich man responds back to them. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Right? Just give them a sign. Give them something to wow them so they'll believe. Give them something to captivate them. And Abraham says, no. He says, because if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone is raised from the dead. Think about how much more revelation that we have living on this side of the cross. And yet people still reject it. And yet the power of a life changed for Christ lies in the gospel proclaimed. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's not the glory cloud in your church service. It's not fake angel feathers flying around. It's not the miraculous signs and wonders. The gospel is what miraculously saves us. What God has revealed to us in the scriptures and then it is faithfully proclaimed by you and me is all that is needed to bring the salvation of those who are lost and dying around us. We don't need iPad giveaways. We don't need to give away a car in this church. We don't need a circus event and set up a tent out here in the yard. We need to faithfully proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and our co-workers and our business clients. We need to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need to preach the one name under heaven that has been given among men, which we might be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. But then we also need to know that a reason that Jesus called them a wicked generation is for seeking a sign, is that they really didn't want him. They just wanted his miraculous benefits. In John six fifteen, after Jesus fed those 5,000 people, it says that he withdrew because they were intending to make him king. They wanted to have a guy who would effortlessly feed him. They wanted a guy who could heal their infirmities. They wanted a guy who could overthrow the Romans from their land because he had supernatural power. And you think about all of the chaos and all of the charismatic churches that are out there proclaiming signs and wonders and how many people say, yes, I want that. Africa is in distress right now because of these health and wealth prosperity teachers telling them, give me your money and I'll give you Jesus and he'll give you a new car and get you out of that poverty and he'll get you a jet just like me what a lie people are buying into it they're doing it here in the united states as well who doesn't want a jesus christ that's going to give you a free car it's ridiculous they don't want jesus they want his benefits these people wanted him because they didn't want him rather because he was the messiah as revealed in the scriptures they didn't want him because he would heal them of their sin-sick hearts. But then that comes to us as a pressing question, doesn't it? Why do you want to go to heaven? Is it because you want to relieve yourself of sorrow and discouragement? Is it because you want relief from your pains and your aches? Is it because you're just so tired of this world that you want to escape there? Or do you want to go to heaven because that's where Jesus Christ is? Do you want to go to heaven? Because that's where our Lord is. Is that why you want to go? Sadly, there's many Christians in this world that would go to heaven even if Jesus wasn't there. They'd want that. But a heaven without Jesus Christ is no heaven at all. And so he calls this crowd. He says, you're a wicked generation seeking for a sign. But then he tells them, I'm going to give you a sign, and it's going to be the sign of Jonah. And what Jonah was to the Ninevites, I will be to this generation. Now, we all, most of us know the story of Jonah and how God told him to go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah, he went and said, I'm going flee to flee to Tarshish. He, he decided to run away from God instead of doing what he was told to do. He had no desire to go to the Assyrian capital and preach to this God-hating nation. But as he jumps on this boat and he sets sail, 
and he tries to flee in the other direction away from God, God whips up a storm that is so fierce that these sailors become terrified, and they try to appeal to whosoever God will get them out of this mess. And so as they cast lots, they try to discern who is the cause of this. The lot falls on Jonah. And so they sort of roll the dice, and Jonah gets snake eyes. And so this captain comes up to Jonah and says, what's the deal? What are you doing? And Jonah says, it's my fault that this calamity has come upon us. And so there's only one solution, and remarkably, Jonah offers up this solution. He says, throw me overboard. That's all you can do. Throw me into the sea. And so they do that, and then God sends a great fish to come and swallow up Jonah, and he spends three nights, or three days and three nights in the Blue Whale Motor Lodge. That's an original. But then Jonah says to God and vows, he goes, I will be obedient and I will go. And so then God commands that great fish, and he spits Jonah up onto the dry land. And Jonah makes a beeline straight to Nineveh and preaches to them. And then immediately, the whole town responds. From the king himself to all of the people in the city, they repent and fast and pray and put on sackcloth and ashes. Even the animals are not to take food and put sackcloth on in hopes that God would withdraw his judgment on them. And as God sees the response of these Ninevites to the preaching of Jonah, and he sees their genuine repentance, God relents from bringing calamity on their city. Now keep this in mind. These Ninevites, they did not see Jonah get swallowed by a whale, or a great fish, rather. They didn't see the calamity that the sailors were facing. They didn't witness any of the miracles that God had just done with Jonah, and yet they repented at the message that Jonah had brought forth. And so the sign that Jesus is talking about, that he's going to give this generation, is his personal death, burial, and resurrection. Jonah, he may have smelled like whale vomit and puke as he walked around. We hope he kind of like took a shower. But Jonah gave no sign to the Ninevites as he walked around preaching to them. We know that the death, burial, and resurrection is a sign because Matthew 12.40 tells us, For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the same way that Jonah was entombed in the sea, Jesus will be entombed in the earth for three days before rising again. Do you realize that God has given us the same sign? How do you know that Jesus was the perfect atoning sacrifice for your sins? How do you know that Jesus lived a perfect life, was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and is now seated on the right hand of the Father? We have the immense benefit of all the accounts made possible to us by the Word of God. That's how we know. We have 2,000-some-odd years of church history, and we have the Holy Spirit of promise working in us and through us. If Lazarus' brothers had Moses and the prophets, and it should have been enough for them, think about the great responsibility with the entire New Testament available to us to repent and believe the gospel. 
But then Jesus gives them another Old Testament illustration of judgment by telling them, he says, the queen of the south, he talks about the queen of the south, rather, in verse 31, he says, the queen of the south will raise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, it's interesting to note for one thing is that the two Old Testament illustrations that Jesus uses, both the Ninevites who repented and the queen of Sheba of the south who sought wisdom and found the source of wisdom were both Gentiles. So this would have pushed the buttons. This would have poked these Jewish crowds a little bit. Although these accounts were in their Old Testament, they would have taken a little bit of offense from Jesus in using these illustrations. But Jesus says that this queen, she's going to rise up in judgment against this generation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the account comes from 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 10, rather. When a ruling queen comes up to see and seek out Solomon, the king in Israel... She heard that he had been a source of wisdom and that he was wealthy as well. And so she wanted to come up here and learn from him in order to rule over her people. And just as a note, some people say she came from the Arabian Peninsula. Some say she came from Egypt and Ethiopia. I think Josephus says that she was a ruler over North Africa. But the point isn't about what specific land she ruled over. The point is that she was a ruler... And she heard the great and wonderful stories about Solomon in Israel. She takes a great caravan and great trouble and great expense to go seek out truth. But she got more than she bargained for. Listen to what she said in 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 6. She said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are your servants who stand before you continually hearing your wisdom. And then verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. This woman came to hear about how to run a monarchy. But instead, she got a lesson in theology. She came earnestly looking for truth, thinking that it lied in the bosom of Solomon, but she found that it actually lied in the bosom of God. That's why Solomon could write so many Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 8.11 says wisdom is better than jewels. But Jesus says to this generation that something is greater than Solomon is here. Solomon's wisdom is a derived wisdom. The wisdom of Christ is the origin of wisdom. Colossians 2, 2 and 3 says that Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You know, the more that you behold Christ, the more that you know Him, the more that you walk with Him, the more you abide in Him, the more that you walk in wisdom. 
you will walk in wisdom, rather. The more you seek him and understand him and know his ways. Alexander McLaren wrote that Christ is the perfect encyclopedia for all moral and spiritual truth. And yet at the judgment, the response this queen had to the wisdom of Solomon will stand as a measuring rod against the men of Jesus' generation and at their response to having the totality and the source of wisdom stand before them. And so in verse 32, Jesus circles back one more time to the story of Jonah. And he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A greater prophet than Jonah was among them. A greater king than Solomon was speaking to them, and yet they still rejected him. And as a result, at the judgment, the Ninevites and the queen of Sheba will stand in testimony against this generation's hard and unbelieving hearts. Has your heart become dull at the wisdom that's available in Christ Jesus? Have you spurned the wisdom that is available to you through prayer and through His Word? James 1.5 says, that. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you seek God's wisdom regularly? Has your heart been captivated by anything else besides Jesus Christ? Then this day is available to you to turn and repent and return to the Lord. And if you ever haven't repented and trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, don't let these Ninevites and this Queen of Sheba stand over you in judgment. Cast yourself upon him. Fly to him, repent, and come home to your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that are found in your word. And Lord, all of us in this room, including myself, in some degree or another, can confess to you that we don't treasure you as we ought to. We don't seek your wisdom as much as we should. God, we pray that you would help our cold, idolatrous hearts. That we would earnestly seek you. That we would desire you above all earthly things. Let us not put any hope or any stock in anything that we possess. Let us only put our hope in Jesus Christ. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.